Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. February is Black History Month, and to celebrate and honor the long legacy of civil rights struggles across the South and the continued work towards justice and equity in Kentucky, I spoke with Representative Attica Scott, who serves the 41st District in the Kentucky House of Representatives. At the time of her election in 2016, Scott became the first African-American woman to serve in the Kentucky General Assembly since 2000. In this interview, Representative Scott talks about how her work as a community organizer, her faith, and her children all influence her approach to leadership. She shares ideas and hopes for how to bridge the divisions, partisan and otherwise, that plague our national landscape. And she talks about some of her heroes, both personal and political, who inspire her every day. So um, we are joined by phone in the studio today by Representative Attica Scott, who serves in the Kentucky House of Representatives for the 41st District. Um, and so in, in reading up a little bit about you before this interview, I read that in 2016, you ran against incumbent Tom Reiner and became the first African-American woman to serve in the Kentucky General Assembly since 2000, um, like 16 years, <laughs> and that that earned you a place among Essence Magazine's Woke 100 Women list um, that featured Black women trailblazers in politics, business, and entertainment. Um, I also read that you have that you're a mom, you have two kids, and that you've focused a lot throughout your time, both in office, but also in your life prior to being elected on issues of social justice broadly, um, issues affecting women, um, communities of color in Kentucky, uh, issues around class inequities and access to health care. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, if you could sort of talk about some of the issues that are most important to you in your work, both as a representative, but just kind of generally in your life. Definitely. And Rachel, thank you so much for that uh, warm introduction. I truly appreciate it. And, you know, for me, being a mom is really what got me into uh, running for office in the first place, because the first time I ran for office, it was actually for a school board in Jefferson County, because I was a a mom of two kids, and I wanted to make sure that they had someone who was fighting for them and their classmates. So they, they have been my inspiration for a long time to actually run for office. But I, I did start out doing grassroots-based, community-based work, um, organizing in different communities and on different social justice issues. And so while Louisville is home, I did want to go away to college, so I went away to Knoxville College in East Tennessee and lived there for about 14 years where I got married and, and started my family and did work there with an organization called the National Conference for Community and Justice. It was formerly the National Conference of Christians and Jews, and so we did a lot of work around um, bias, bigotry, and racism. And then I came home to work as coordinator of Kentucky Jobs with Justice, doing a lot of work around um, immigrant worker justice, single-payer health care, um, labor union organizing, uh, electoral um, and civic engagement. So, yes, that has been my work from the very beginning that helped to shape me to become the politician that I am today. Yeah. And I, so I wonder if you could sort of talk about some of the 
maybe the influences in your life that led you to be involved in in working for justice. I've, I've read a little bit about um, maybe some family inspiration for sort of political work, but also mm-hmm. I'm curious just sort of about how your early life and even young adulthood sort of led you to, to this kind of work. Well, Rachel, I don't feel like I had a choice, to be honest with you. My uh, parents were both very much involved in civil rights and human rights and social justice. They actually moved from Louisville to Los Angeles to join the Black Panther Party. And although they never joined, because once they got there, my mother just felt like, you know, she could have stayed back in Louisville if she was going to be the helper instead of someone who, you know, was out in front helping to take the lead on activism. And so while they didn't join, they remained in solidarity. And um, even though they were no longer together after a while in, in Los Angeles where my brother was born, you know, my mother still made sure to expose us to so much and so many different kinds of people. I had a cousin who was a Buddhist, and so I, you know, I would, would chant with her and you know, although I grew up and, and am still a Christian, just having that opportunity to be exposed to a different religion and went to elementary school with kids who were Jewish and was able to be part of their celebrations and um, to have gone to my first pride parade in Los Angeles with my mom and her boyfriend who, you know, they sold cards, uh, greeting cards that they handmade and hand-painted. You know, it was just such an important part of my upbringing and helped to shape me to be the kind of person who's just naturally inclusive and wanting to make sure that people are represented and that I'm fighting for people and fighting with people. Um, And and I truly appreciate my parents for that upbringing. I truly appreciate them for um, exposing me to um, life that was different than what I was used to so that I could understand that my experience isn't the only experience. And so it's really them. um, It's, you know, as I mentioned before, my kids just really helping to, to you know, shape me to see, you know, that there's there's so much more that's bigger than me, that I'm out here, but I'm out here for the we, for all of us, for the collective. Um, my experiences living in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, living in East, um, East Tennessee and, and what we um, often refer to as urban Appalachia and having the experiences there and then coming back home to Louisville and Kentucky and um, being in community with lots of different people just really helped me and and all of those folks that I navigated with and, and am in community with have inspired me in lots of different ways, whether it's my political mentor, the Honorable Eleanor Jordan, who was actually the last black woman to serve in Frankfurt before I was elected, um, or whether it's uh, my friends, people of faith who keep me grounded and, and um, help me to um, reflect on who I am as a spiritual being who's also uh, a politician, you know, working in government. So lots of different influences, lots of different um, people who have inspired me. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess I'm I'm wondering if, if we could dig a little bit more into some of the work that you did sort of prior to getting elected um, and some of the more community organizing roles that you've had um, you know, I think I think sometimes in in social justice movements, there's a lot of different opinions about the best way or the best um, venues through which to try to push for change. And you've sort of experienced trying to do this work in some different segments of um, mm-hmm. society. And I'm 
I'd love to hear sort of um, how some of your past work, either in East Tennessee um, or in Kentucky before getting elected, maybe um, things that are that that support you in your role now as a representative in the state and or things that are really different that maybe maybe you miss from some of the community organizing spaces. Definitely. Well, I will say that when I first ran for office, I had um, there were some all women of color. We, we were sitting down every couple of months or so with one another at our different kitchen tables and just, you know, lamenting the state of public affairs and how we, we uh, were not being represented as women of color and especially as young women of color. And um, that's, that's really where that first push to run came from. And what we decided is that we need to make sure that we have an inside-outside strategy. And I really learned that from uh, the people that I work with in East Tennessee who had been members of the Black Panther Party and who had um, been uh, and continue to be very active with the NAACP and who taught me as my mentors in East Tennessee that you have to have an inside strategy if you want to truly impact change, that if we're only working on the inside, we lose touch with people who are in community and on the ground and in neighborhoods. And if we are only working on the outside, then we don't necessarily know how things really work in government and in politics. We're making some assumptions and hoping that our strategies work. And then when they don't work, we don't understand why they, they don't necessarily work. And so when I ran for office, I was clear that this is so that we could have that inside-outside strategy, that I'm coming in as someone who's been shaped by and formed by activism and community-based work and nonprofit work, and I'm coming into government so that I could take back home what I learned. And so speaking from my experience as a state representative, that very first session when I was in Frankfurt, I was very clear that I was taking back what I was learning to the people that I was serving and representing, and not only in District 41, but across the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So, you know, whether it was doing the weekly Facebook legislative updates on Facebook Live, where we would have thousands of people from across Kentucky tuning in, or whether it was in the summer hosting uh, legislative town halls in different parts of District 41 so that folks could just come out and, and ask questions, just really bringing back what I was learning so that we could have that strategy. And what I remember saying to lots of folks who were doing social justice work um, after that first session is, it's not what we thought, folks. It's so different serving in office and actually seeing um, how decisions are made. And so let's now try to operate from this place of now we know, now we understand, now we have some clarity. And so let's um, shift and transform the way in which we operate. So really, it's it's been um, a compliment. So, you know, being an activist and now serving in office, to me, is nothing but a compliment to being the best kind of public servant possible. Mm. Yeah, and it sounds too like... Um like there's not a divi- a division really clearly between your life kind of before being an elected official and after and that you're still trying to be as accountable as you can be to your to the community that you've been connected to in different ways in different roles um and i would say that's true i i don't think there should be a division i truly believe that 
who we are fundamentally is who we should take with us when we're serving in office, when we're debating a bill or filing a bill or casting a vote. We should have as our foundation and in our hearts and minds the, the people who helped to get us here, the people we've been in community with, um, the people we've, we've been in struggle with, because they're the ones who, who support us, who believe in us, who have put them, their, themselves in us and said, you are our representative. You represent all of us. You're simply the one we have chosen to send to be our face in the state capitol. And so I, I, I don't believe there should be a division. I think that when we create those divisions, that's when we lose touch. That That's when people become politicians in the negative sense of the word, and it, because they they don't go back home and, and stay accountable and allow themselves to be um, transparent and, and to receive um, criticism and feedback. It's that staying in community, it's that breaking down of those divisions and divides, it's that um, not allowing for um, that the false narratives and separation of activism and organizing and public service to occur, but instead seeing that seeing them as wholly and fundamentally a part of one another. Mm. That's that's really interesting. It seems like we're in such a time kind of nationally where where a lot of people do feel such a divide between elected officials and their own communities and in in so many different communities and even across like very different political um, sort of camps, right, <laughs> that people mm-hmm. feel this divide. And so I'm I'm really curious if you have I mean, you sort of mentioned some of the ways in which you've tried to to bring your knowledge that you've gained in in the House of Representatives back to um, kind of community organizing efforts. I'm curious, though, if if you have more to say about that, about how how you think elected officials can be better kind of in touch with their constituents, Mm -hmm. because it seems like it's just such a huge issue in our country right now. It is. And and I have hope when I look at the 116th Congress and look at all of the women and women of color who are serving now. I mean, it's record numbers and the ways in which they are making sure that they uh, share what they are learning with their constituents and with their followers. It just gives me hope that we are breaking down those silos and those divisions and that we're trying to share back in very layman's ways with people what's really happening in our you know our nation's capital and in our state capital and so i see them doing that nationally at the state level i see that with so many of us who have been recently elected whether it was those of us who were elected in 2016 or 2018 who are using these new media and social media tools to stay connected but also making sure that we're for example um, doing town halls and community forums and 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 opening ourselves up to questions and comments and and giving feedback and and I just have to say Rachel when I am in Frankfurt and for example you know 2018 having some young women from Eastern Kentucky stop by my office and say we just wanted to stop by and say to you that you're the representative we wish we had that just warms my heart and it says to me. That's how we do this. We break it down by urban-rural divides. You know, it's it's not Appalachia and West Louisville. It's all of us across the Commonwealth. And if we can speak to one another in those ways that say, I see you, we're part of one another, I represent and serve you, I think that I know and I have hope and I have no doubt that we can begin to break down those divisions and silos because they're, they're 
they're false narratives that been have been created by people who are benefiting from that division. I don't believe that those of us who are struggling, who are marginalized, who are um, uh, unfortunately uh, being being oppressed by institutional and systemic racism and division, we don't benefit um, by that separation. We benefit when we all work together and build our collective power. And that's what I want to see us do across the Commonwealth. Yeah. <laughs> this might be, you know, maybe there isn't a whole lot more to say than what you've already said, but but this most recent um, election at the national level did see just so many women elected into government offices and women of color in particular. And I wonder mm-hmm. if there's just more you'd want to say about that or anything you'd want to comment on that. Well, for me, many of the the women and um, in particular women of color who were running for um, Congress in 2018, I started following them before their primaries because I was inspired. I saw myself in them and the possibilities for someone like me and my daughter and so many um, girls and women across the Commonwealth to see themselves one day serving in our nation's capital. And so just to watch the way that they campaigned and how inclusive they were and intentional about reaching out to all kinds of people and, and listening to people honestly and, and, and authentically and, and engaging in different ways was just so inspiring. And it's and I've already been able to see them in action and at, at work to see that they're committed to governing differently, that they understand that we're in a, a different time. We're in a time when, as women, we are owning our power and our voice and we're using them because we all have power and we all have a voice in different ways and in different settings and we're using that and and to see them um, be able to speak their truth and um, to really say to folks across the country that we're here to serve our entire country, and we're going to do that in a way that's different than what you've seen before, that we're not interested in these backdoor deals, and we're not uh, interested in uh, making deals on the golf course or in you know, smoking cigars and, and making deals. We want to be out in the open with you, and we want to share back with you how uh, decisions were made and why we made the decisions the way in which we did. To me, that goes back to the need for more women in office and in leadership, because we just we we are different. We govern differently. We're um, more uh, community focused and minded, and we bring community with us. It's hardly ever just about us uh, having a position and title. It's about us being sent by the people to serve. And so we remember that. And so hopefully at the local and state level here in Kentucky, um, we're going to have more and more uh, women who step up to run for office. Uh, I'm inspired by the 116th Congress because I know that in Kentucky at the local and state level, we're going to have more women of color stepping up to run for office. And the way that that happens is when all of us across Kentucky say, we're going to support you, that you won't be out there on your own. And we know that um, whether you're going to D.C. or you're going to Frankfurt, that you're going to represent us. So we're going to make sure we do everything we can to get you there. Yeah. Well, Kind of going off that and, and your what you just said about thinking that women sort of govern differently, I'm I'm curious, um, you know, both as a woman, also as a black woman in a in a state that's seen nationally as a pretty conservative southern state politically. Um, I'm 
certain <laughs> that you face mm -hmm. challenges in your career, right? And and pushback and um, some not so fun parts. And I'm mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you could speak to that, and especially maybe for young women, young women of color, um, who might be interested in someday running for office. Sort of, do you have advice on how to deal with some of the hard parts of it? Well, when I ran for school board, I was told that it was not my time. So I guess I was seen as too young in my 30s, and also I didn't have a political last name that people knew, so I, I was told it was not my time to run. Uh, we It was a five-way race, and I still, with little to no name recognition or money, ended up coming in second place. So we ran a really strong grassroots campaign, and we didn't give up, and we didn't listen to the naysayers because it's any of our time. If any of us are, are eligible to run for an office, it's our time. It's it's uh, not up to some status quo or establishment or, or corporate body to decide for us when we should run. If that were the case, we would not have as many um, people of color uh, in office or women in office because we are often told it's not our time or that office is not for you or we already have someone in mind. And then when I served on Louisville Metro Council, um, I, I know we're on the radio, Rachel, but, you know, for uh, listeners, I wear my hair naturally. I have locks. And so I remember uh, being told that part of the conversation that was going around with council members is, is she going to cut her hair? Would I change my hair to serve on Metro Council? So get rid of my natural hair and straighten it, put chemicals in it, in it or heat on it. And, and so those kinds of things, as a black woman, I have to face in ways that other people don't have to face. In Frankfurt, my first session, I am the only black woman on the floor of 100 members of the House, and I was seated behind the, the individual who had won from uh, Bullitt County who had used images of the Obamas as apes in his campaign. And I remember going to our leadership and saying – I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous that the only black woman, the only woman of color in this body is seated behind someone who was openly racist when they were campaigning. And so uh, when we came back in February, my seat was changed, and uh, which, you know, brings up other issues of how we, we treat the people who bring the complaints. You know, why did I have to be the one to move? But, you mm. know, that's, that's another whole another story, right? Um, and then you know, this year, I'm still, you know, trying to get on uh, a committee that, according to our rules, I should be on as uh, as an incumbent. And so, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like I'm constantly having um, to fight um, uh, for um, what is, is supposed to be one of our rules or, you know, fight for um, people to know, see my humanity. And so I say to other girls and women and um, African-Americans and other people who, of color who are thinking about running and young people that, yes, there will be those kinds of uh, microaggressions, th those, those things that to other people might seem small or they don't ever have to think about. But you have to think about them, as do so many people that you serve. And so run anyway and win and serve and change the systems and help to change hearts and minds so that the people who come after you don't have to have those experiences. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, 
And in this special Black History Month episode, we're celebrating the long legacy of civil rights organizing across the South by highlighting some continued work towards justice in Kentucky. Guiding us on this journey is Representative Attica Scott, who serves in the Kentucky House of Representatives for the 41st District. At the time of her election in 2016, Scott became the first African-American woman to serve in the Kentucky General Assembly since 2000. In the second half of this program, Representative Scott talks about how her relationship with her Christian faith influences her work towards justice and equity in Kentucky. She also talks about how her experience as a mother shapes her approach to leadership. Finally, Scott tells us what she loves most about Kentucky and the issues she's most passionate about seeing change. Earlier, when I asked you sort of some of the influences in your life that led you to sort of be involved in in a fight for justice in, in the state and in the country, you mentioned both faith and your children. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about how you see sort of faith working with political work, um, in especially in a state that has had some um, kind of religious freedom legislation in the past and proposals um, that restrict rights of the LGBTQ community. I'm just curious sort of to hear your take on how faith can be um, an important part of politics without um, infringing on people's lives in negative ways. That is such a fair question. And I am very fortunate that I I grew up in uh, a church body that truly believed in justice, that um, for us as black folks, um, we we realized that we, you know, have, have always had to fight. And so, and, and we know what it's like to have the foot of government and oppression on our necks and on our backs. And so I was brought up to believe that we shouldn't want that for anyone. Like, we should never want someone else to experience oppression and, and injustice. And so that's why I fight so hard to make sure that people who are LGBTQIA plus have uh, their rights, that, that, you know, hopefully with the historic number of people signing on to uh, statewide fairness, that we will have statewide fairness in Kentucky. And that's why... You know, I speak up so strongly for women's rights and, and our right to make our own health care decisions and reproductive choices because we deserve bodily autonomy and we um, deserve to be able to make those decisions for ourselves. And, and that's why I fight to raise the minimum wage because I know what it's like to grow up in poverty and I know what it's like to be a young person um, trying to make it paycheck to paycheck and, and to be a single mom and, and you know, looking for that, that next check because I know that's what's going to get the rent paid. And so because I've lived those experiences, I don't want that for anyone else. I want people to be able to have healthy lives and to be able to thrive. Um, folks across our Commonwealth, I want them um, to be able to, to thrive and to know that they have people who are working on their behalf and and fighting for and with them every single day, even when they can't make it to the state capitol, because some of us know what their life experiences are like because we've been there. And so 
my faith has been a, a strong part of um, why I, I believe the way that I do, why I do the work that I do. And, and, and to this day, my pastor is um, such a huge uh, supporter for me and, and rock and someone that I know I can call on um, if I have a question about uh, an issue that I'm that I might be grappling with because of my faith. And, you know, he'll help me see through some things that are kind of muddy or, or unclear. And, um, and I, I've, my faith has never taught me that it's okay uh, to uh, um, prejudge people. My faith has never taught me that uh, it's okay to be sexist or racist or homophobic. My faith has never taught me that, and so I wouldn't be that person. And, you know, I, it, I have long lived by um, Amos 5 and 24. That's one of my favorite quotes, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. I mean, I, I truly believe that, that we um, have to be about the business of fighting for justice and, and do it in a way that's righteous and above board and that, you know, is, is welcoming and inclusive of, of everyone. And so I've tried to teach that to my children um, because I want them, uh, you know, as the next generation of uh, elected leaders or civic leaders or business leaders or philanthropists, whatever the case may be, faith leaders, I want them to grow with that same understanding and belief um, and, and for them to know that um, faith and activism are not separate from one another, that in fact um, your faith can and should inform your activism in a way that's about justice and human rights and service. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. You you mentioned in the beginning that being being a mother is sort of what first motivated you to to run for office. Um, mm-hmm. And I I'm curious if you think that being a mother impacts how you how you govern as an elected official. Definitely. And, you know, I have the, the privilege of um, sitting next to Representative Angie Hatton and uh, we are sitting in the same row. We're just one seat over from one another. And we talk often about um, parenting and motherhood and our, our kids. And, and that just is such an important part of our service, that when we're in Frankfurt debating a bill or asking questions in committee or rising to speak on the House floor, we're often thinking about them and them watching us and what message are we sending to them when we speak? What message are we sending to them with the questions that we ask? And what message do we send to them when we're silent, when we let uh, an offense pass without uh, challenge or question? And so, yes, that being a mother, being a parent is so much a part of, for me, being a politician, um, because it goes beyond our our children. It, it, it's beyond the children that we adopt or foster or birth. It's about the children who, um, across the Commonwealth, are, are hungry for, thirsty for, um, looking for the leaders that they can say that they're proud of, that they would one day want to be like, or you know, if they want to visit their office or see you at a march and rally and want to hug and, and take a picture like that is so important for us to keep that in mind as well. And I keep it in mind every single day. And when I see uh, young people, when I see little kids who um, are excited um, to see me, that, that says something to me. That says something about um, 
how I'm carrying myself as uh, an elected leader and um, how I'm making it clear to them that they are a priority for me. And so I want to keep uh, doing that kind of work and keep the doors open so that young people know that they're welcome in their their state house, their people's house, that the office that I sit in to do work is their office. I'm simply the one uh, who is there for uh, the time that I am uh, uh, blessed and allowed to serve. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit here um, mm-hmm. to talk about Kentucky <laughs> um, okay. a little bit. And so um, I think Kentucky is both a state that um, – gets a lot of national attention for being very conservative um, Mm -hmm. and also is clearly a state where there's a there's a lot more complicated histories of um, who has been here and continues to be in these communities than what the national media sometimes portrays for our state. We're pretty Mm -hmm. familiar with that in Appalachia in terms of the way this region gets represented, especially sort of as um, Trump country, which there's some real truth to and also is not the full story. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm curious just kind of how um, you as a pretty progressive, can- not candidate, I'm sorry, <laughs> a uh, representative in this state, mm-hmm. um, sort of balance that, this this understanding that there um, is a really long history of sort of um, social justice organizing in this state and also, mm. there's a really long history of pretty powerful um, conservative politics in the state that influenced the national landscape, too, and just kind of how you navigate some of that in your work. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question, because it's something that um, uh, bothers me and that I feel like we need to have more conversation around. And we also need to do more to push back on those narratives that um, have been created for us, quite honestly, um, by national folks who don't really know us. And so, you know, for example, to call any place Trump country is so unfair because he and no other one president owns any part of this country. They are people that um, are in service to all of us. And so um, this, just like Louisville or Lexington, uh, we're not Obama country. Uh, Appalachia is not Trump country. Appalachia is your country. It's my country. It's our country. And so that's the message that I try to send to folks. And I'm very fortunate that because of the the grassroots community-based work that I've done over the years and uh, my elected leadership both at the local and now state level, that I have a lot of national um, relationships with folks. And so whenever I have the opportunity to have these conversations or, or am, am interviewed and these kinds of questions come up, I push back and I challenge that narrative. And I, I say that this is our Kentucky, that we all who live here, who choose to live here, continue to live here, this is our home. And so we I create the narrative of what we want Kentucky to be. And I say to people often, if you haven't been to eastern Kentucky, if you haven't been to the hood in western Kentucky or the hollers in Appalachia, you don't know us. And so until you really spend some authentic time engaging with us and listening to our stories and and understanding how nuanced and complicated and different and unique and the same on so many ways that we really are, then please stop trying to tell our story for us and and we will tell our own story so that we can get the true story and narrative out there. 
And and so that also is the way in which I approach our history in Kentucky and our present and where we're going in the future. So um, in the future, Kentucky is going to be a, a lot more um, ethnically and racially diverse uh, commonwealth. And and we, you know, may not in lots of places see that yet, but we're moving in that direction. And so we need to do the work now of becoming the kind of commonwealth that understands difference, that embraces difference and respects and values difference, but also that we take the time and we invest in seeing where we're so much the same. I mean, so many of us simply want the best for our families and for ourselves and for our friends, and we want vibrant neighborhoods. We all want that for the most part. So let's look at how we can work together uh, in those areas. Uh, It's it's something that I feel like we all have a responsibility to do the work of, that it's not uh, something we can depend on politicians to do because we so often get it wrong, that it's really going to be the folks in community who lead us to that better and brighter and and bigger Kentucky than we've ever been. And I'm looking forward to seeing that work happen and and supporting in whatever way that I can. Yeah. And I think, too, like, it's a a question for so many communities in Kentucky, but also in the country right now, in this time of of really intense divisions politically um, in the U.S., where I think... There's both, I think, a lot of interest in how to bridge these gaps, but also kind of a lot of fear and walls, literal mm-hmm, and figurative mm-hmm. right now. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious from your experience, both in organizing and also in Frankfurt, um, if you have some sort of ideas for how communities wanting to address some of these divisions can go about that. Definitely. I will will share my experience um, with organizing and activism. One of the the tenets that was so fundamental to us and continues to be fundamental to me um, in that work is that we need to organize around our shared and common values. And so those shared and common values were not partisan values. Those shared and common values were about humanity and decency and respect and family and love. And so that's how we organize. And and the beauty of that is you're not asking people what's your political affiliation. You're asking people how can we make sure that you can feed your family? How can we make sure that you can afford your medicine? How do we make sure that you have rights at work? And so that's um, for me, uh, you know, one of those first steps that we need to take is, is simply asking and being in conversation with one another about what is it that you need and how can we work together to make sure you have what you need. Um, you know, recently I had a, a party that I threw to just thank people for their support. And um, one of the women at the party came up to me and she said, I want you to know that I'm a Republican and I support you. She said, I agree with just about everything that you said when you spoke tonight except for one thing, but that doesn't matter, right? We don't have to agree on everything. Whoever said that we all have to agree on everything? Personally, I think that would be weird to (laughs) to agree with someone on everything. That's just (laughs) odd. Um, We should have some, some differences because we're all different. But just to have her come up to me and to say that was so important because she was able to break through, you know, this this partisan narrative. Um, I was able to 
share a message that resonated for her. And that's important. That's what we have to do. We Let's uh, stop demonizing one another and attacking one another and instead saying what's best for our country and what's best for our commonwealth, what's best for our counties and our cities. And so that's that's the work uh, that I want to do. And that's, that's I, I think, some of the ways in which people can begin to do that work. I'm just getting back to your, your question, Rachel. And then the, the other um, part of your, your question um, to me that's really important is, um, you know, how do we be today not only do that work based in community, but also at the political level? And so when I think about people in Martin County not even being able to, to drink their water or, or take a bath, that hurts my heart as someone in Jefferson County, and it is unacceptable, and every single person in this Commonwealth should be um, up in arms about what's happening in Martin County. And so for me, it's uh, then going to reach out to my colleagues, Representative Chris Harris and Representative uh, Angie Hatton, and saying, what can I do from Jefferson County to support you and what you're trying to do for and with the folks in Martin County, and then coming back home and doing that work and saying to folks, all right, you know, I've got a friend uh, over here in Mercer County, Kathy Carter, who's collecting water. If no one here in Jefferson County is, is doing that yet, I encourage you all to uh, contact her and, and get some water to her so they can get some water to Martin County. So it's, um, you know, some people may see that as that's not uh, our issue. We're far removed. But the reality is what hurts one person in Kentucky should hurt all of us. And so, yes, that is our issue. So for me, from uh, a political uh, position, the way that we build some of those bridges and um, walk across some of those divides is when you see my issue as your issue and I see your issue as mine. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you sort of what sounds like a simple question, but I'm curious what you'll say, which is um, I'm curious some of the things that you love most about Kentucky and some of the things that you're most motivated to see change in the state. Mm, Kentucky. Kentucky, we have the best food. Oh, my gosh. I, I, Rachel, I'm a foodie. I love food, <laughs> all kinds of food. And anywhere I go in Kentucky, I can always find some of the best food ever. So I love that about Kentucky. I love the people in Kentucky. We're just... We find a way in Kentucky, whatever that way is, we find a way. And we have the solutions to whatever our problems are. We just have to make sure that we have both the community and political will to address those um, issues and problems and challenges. But I believe that we can do it. And that's part of the beauty of Kentucky, um, that there's so much belief and faith that exists across the Commonwealth that I know we can do anything. And I'm so inspired by that. I love the energy of young people in Kentucky. I mean, whether it's at the elementary, middle, high school, college, university level, I love the energy and especially the energy that I've been seeing in recent years um, from young people, whether it's uh, March for Our Lives or um, queer young people in Appalachia, whatever uh, the movement or issue or place may be, I'm just loving seeing that leadership from young people. And I love the women of Kentucky. The women of Kentucky know how to fight. We know how to speak up and own our voice. We know how to um, have our strong stances, like literally, uh, physically, and also um, mentally. We, we have strong stances and positions, 
and we know how to work together. As women in Kentucky, we are showing the country what it means to work together. And you asked earlier about you know, the, the fact that we have so many groups and organizations across the Commonwealth doing good work and working together. That's something that's known nationally, Rachel. I mean, people across the, uh, the country know Kentucky for having um, lots of organizations that work together. And that's so important for the way in which we continue to transform the narrative about Kentucky. So I love so much about Kentucky, and I love um, looking at, at data and demographic trends and, and changes and seeing where we're going in the next couple of decades to be um, a much more diverse commonwealth in terms of ethnicity and race. It's very exciting. And that also brings some challenges and opportunities. Going back to the, the second part of your question, that yes, there will, will be challenges and opportunities that come with that transformation, and we have the chance right now to be ready, to be prepared for those changes. And, you know, whether it's making sure we have a, a clear and accurate census count in 2020 so that we um, know for the next decade what kinds of services we need to make sure we provide. Um, there are going to be challenges always, and I believe we have uh, the opportunity to address those challenges. Yes, I'm very um, concerned about and hurt by some of the, the hatred that I've seen in year, recent years in different parts of Kentucky. And at the same time, I appreciate the people who have um, looked that hatred in the eye and said, we will not have that here. You know, whether it's folks in eastern Kentucky saying to uh, white supremacist groups, you will not recruit here, um, and, and whether it's uh, folks right here in my own backyard in Louisville who, you know, after two black people were killed at a Kroger by a white supremacist who said, um, we will not have that here. It's people across Kentucky who then push back on the ugliness and say that we are a better Kentucky. And we will, and, and some maybe historically we've been quiet and maybe historically we've accepted some things, but not today and not tomorrow. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. So, through this work that you're doing, um, which I'm sure at times can be challenging and can be exhausting and can be really daunting, I'm wondering what kinds of things bring you joy and how you sort of stay inspired and motivated. Mm, thanks for that question, Rachel. Such a good question. Um, so I have to give a shout out to um, the people in my life who said to me after my first session, that they were going to start a meal train for me during the legislative session so that my daughter and I, you know, on those nights when we could be in Frankfurt till 1130 uh, at night and not get home until after 1 a.m., could have food at home. And so uh, in 2018, some very good friends of mine started this meal train, and they each signed up for uh, a Friday during the legislative session to bring us a meal. I mean, that's huge. And so they're doing it again this year. And, you know, I've shared that with some of my colleagues who I know are parenting and also working full-time while at the same time serving in the legislature, which is my reality as, you know, a mom and uh, a state representative and, you know, working full-time. I've shared that with them to say when people step up to say that they want to help you in some way and they offer some kind of help, take them up on that offer because your family and your friends, they mean that. They know you. They love you. They see what you need to accept that. So that um, 
it, it helps sustain me. It fills me. It gives me joy. Um, also, uh, being back home and being able to um, participate in worship services at my church um, fulfill me and sustain me and keep me going. You know, having um, my elders at church who just, you know, say, you know, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. That's so important for me to hear because I know that for so long um, they have lived with uh, institutions and systems you know, live with government and politics that has neglected them, forgotten them, or even um, uh, oppressed them. And so that just means so much to me, and that, that uh, um, continues to sustain me and fill me. And then I'm, I'm so full of joy, and it, it gives me joy when I am around young people in particular who are uh, just asking great questions about, well, how does Frankfurt work? How does the session work? Um, how can I get involved? And then their eyes light up when I say something like, you know, come be a page um, on our house floor or come and shadow me for a day. And they do it. They follow up. And to deceive them as we walk through the Capitol on any given day to meetings and, and um, committee hearings and to, you know, read through legislation, that's just joyful. And so, um, you know, I wish that for other people who are serving, that they have um, the kinds of support systems that I have, the kinds of connections to um, the people who will continue to inspire them, like so many young people um, right here um, in Louisville and across the Commonwealth inspire me. Great. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so this this interview, we are pre-recording, but it's going to be airing during our Black History Month series of Mountain Talks, exploring kind of history locally in Appalachia, but also kind of throughout Kentucky. Um, and I'm knowing that this will be airing during that programming. Um, I'm wondering if there are any kind of names of people who are heroes or sheroes of yours um, who've, who you think about um, through your work, um, whether they're people that you've met or people that you've learned about throughout history? Well, I want folks who are listening, who are tuning in, to know that um, the um, African-American members of the House started uh, in 2018 to do what we call a Black History Month vignette uh, during every day of the session. So we'd each stand uh, once a day and give a Black History Month vignette, and it was always focused on Kentucky Black history. And there was so much that our colleagues would come up to us with afterwards and say that they learned. And I, for one, focused on um, Appalachia as one of the areas where I wanted to make sure to pull out and share that black history, in part because my former father-in-law uh, was a coal miner uh, from Fairmont, West Virginia. And so, you know, when I think about um, the the history of coal mining, I wanted to lift that up in his honor and in his memory. And so I pulled out those stories. And, and we're going to do that again for uh, this this month, February, Black History Month. So please tune in so that you can hear those vignettes that we we share, and you might actually learn something about Black History in Kentucky that you didn't know. And and so that history and that knowledge feeds me today, and it helps me um, to keep going when I think about the Black women who came before me to serve in the legislature. And I've already lifted up the Honorable Eleanor Jordan, and she was also uh, the first. 
a black person in Kentucky to run for Congress. And I'm so inspired by her story and so grateful that she lives in my neighborhood and she's someone who, you know, is a phone call away or a door knock away. You know, I think about uh, the people uh, in Kentucky who um, whose names we don't know, but I also think about the people whose names we know, and especially women like Coretta Scott King, who helped me to see what it means to, to be intersectional, who um, just by her very being was clear and intentional about supporting gay rights and that um, black rights were important, gay rights were important, that we have to address the issue of poverty in our country. And I believe we have to do that across our Commonwealth. So she continues to inspire me to this day. And I'm inspired by the women who are serving in the 116th Congress. I don't know that I could say that enough because we have, for the first time ever, think about the history of this country, for the first time ever, we have two Native women, two Native Indian women who are serving in Congress for the first time ever. And I am so inspired by Representative Davids and Representative Holland and their stories and how they are saying to the rest of us, you too can serve. And so um, when I think about them and when I think about my colleague, Representative Nima Kukarni, who is now the first Indian immigrant ever to serve in the Kentucky House of Representatives, I am hopeful, I am joyous, and I know that Kentucky, we are going to build a better commonwealth for all of us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of the end of my questions. I did want to just ask, which I always ask folks at the end of an interview, if there's something you think we should have talked about or something that you'd want folks to know before we wrap up recording. Well, one of the things that I want folks to know who are listening is that the capital of Kentucky in Frankfurt is your capital. It's the people's house. And no matter how much um, the administration or any other body might try to bar you or limit your access, it's your building. And so um, we have spoken up and um, we have been able to get uh, access opened up again to uh, the Capitol building from the annex. So I encourage you to come visit, even if you can only come and visit once, whether it's because of child care, elder care, your work schedule, transportation, whatever the case may be, if you can connect groups um, in your community uh, who are coming to Frankfurt, please try to come once. I think it's so important for you to see your government in action, to see your state representative and your state senator in action, um, and for you to be able to go back home and share your experience with others. So I just want to encourage folks, come visit us. I would love to see you. Stop by my office to say um, hello. Let's grab a hug and take a picture together. Um, and I look forward to continuing to serve you um, in, in the legislature and in whatever uh, other capacity I'm called to serve. Great. Thank you so much for making time for this. And um, I really enjoyed getting to learn more about you through researching and through talking with you. I'm glad to know about you and your work. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. I appreciate the opportunity. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring Representative Attica Scott, who serves in the Kentucky House of Representatives for the 41st District. At the time of her election in 2016, Scott became the first black woman to serve in the Kentucky General Assembly since 2000. 
She joined us by phone for this interview, which is part of our 2019 Black History Month series. Music on this episode features Amethyst Kia, recorded in the Apple Shop Theater for a Feminist Friday live event in the fall of 2016. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them over on our website at WMMT.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. So got happy and stayed all day. I went in the room, I looked in the bay, saw my brother laying there, and he was dead. Who loaned in my trouble so hard? Who loaned in my trouble so Thank you.